0: This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, the uh, fifth podcast. And I am with Guy Zimmerman, who is in Los Angeles, and I am in Norway, like always. Hey, Guy.
1: John, how's it going?
0: Um, well, pretty good, considering <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: yeah, considering
0: the uh, the lockdown. Um, you know, we'll we'll kind of weave that into things. It's it's uh, speaking personally. Uh, you know, the schools are closed, so so one is home with one's kids uh, for the many hours a day they are usually in school, and and that's a, a seems like an unfair hardship. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 positively surreal. I, I took a drive the other day and um, on roads that were normally full and, and there was nobody on them. I, I had a reason because I had to go pick up some medicine, but um, it it's spooky, it's eerie, and it's very science fiction-like, which kind of segues into um, to what we were maybe going to talk about a bit today. Uh, I can't remember anything like this and... Um, i recommend to people just off the top of my head that um at the off guardian webpage kit nightly uh she has written some really terrific pieces on um on the corona event and uh it's 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 a very useful perspective and and chock-full of information so um that would be uh that would be my first suggestion, but anyway um one of the things I said in in the dialogue I had with Molly Klein last time um, because she's a very astute reader of Jonathan Beller, and Beller is very difficult and but but kind of essential and Beller has talked about psychoanalysis as film theory, you know, that that people's unconscious is now filled with memories of movies that are interchangeable with one's real memories. And and I think to jump back to the the corona event, I like calling it an event, um is is that my sense is that people have so willingly been herded into the positions, intellectual, ideological positions that they have and, and behavior have so easily been herded, partly because it feels like a movie to people. And it, I mean, it feels like a movie to me, frankly. Uh, when I was out driving on those empty roads, I thought, oh, well, this this is a
1: post-apocalyptic uh,
0: movie. This a disaster
1: I, movie that we've seen many times. Yeah,
0: yeah 2,000 times, yeah and And so that that's um because i'm I, I'm just writing a blog post about this, so maybe this is on my mind, but um there is this sense i mean we've talked before you and I about the post apocalyptic disaster film phenomena, zombie franchises, and how part of the pull is that people desire that. Um, we maybe even touched on that in the first podcast. Um, that people would love to start over, you know, and it becomes a reconstruction <laughs> narrative and so forth. And and so um, there is there is some at least partly unconscious, partly conscious um, excitement that people are feeling about this. Well, you know, it's interesting
1: it's, what what immediately what immediately comes to mind. Uh, movie-wise, when you say that, is a movie that I didn't love so much, but that I kind of admire, which is um, Snowpiercer.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, where you have this train that is moving in this post-apocalyptic frozen landscape, you know, sort of powered by nuclear, um, a nuclear engine and And it's, you know, the, the, it's about a revel, you know, it's very much the class structure and each car is a different element of the class structure.
0: And there's a sense,
1: you know, and of course the, you know, the, the hero who starts in the back and fights his way forward, sort of encountering all these different uh, cars in which there are, you know, um, different milieu, different cultural milieu finally arrives at the front and he's offered, to be, you know, he, his, the, re, the reward is that he can be the new captain of the train. And then the train, <laughs> then there's an event where the train crashes and the, 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 the film ends with the, um, the character who ends up, the actor, I forget his name, but he's in Parasite also, heads out sort of a, away from the tracks with his daughter in this new world. And it's very much that moment of like starting over where you're leaving all sort of known coordinates because you recognize that nothing new is possible within this set of prescribed, predetermined perspectives. And I (laughs) as much as I didn't really like the movie all that much, um, although Tilda Swinton was fantastic as a Maggie Thatcher kind of character but um i liked i liked the the way he completed that metaphor so. yeah you know the
0: the um the uh uh idea that that i mean one can look at all of those films those kind of um uh post apocalyptic or zombie films as as reconstruction dramas and they invariably are and I was just thinking that an interesting double bill, because, yeah, I didn't care for Snowpiercer much at all, but but I agree with what you said. But Snowpiercer and Hitchcock's The Saboteur is is my new favorite double bill idea, because that was I Hitchcock's love the Saboteur. Funny,
1: I love The Saboteur. Yeah, it's no, The Saboteur
0: true. is terrific. And, um, and it was his, there was all this kind of class, funny class um, analysis, Hitchcockian style, um, with the circus performers and all of the, you know, in, in, when he's on the train and, and um, uh, you know, from a very decidedly different era. But science fiction in general, just to kind of jump into to that, is, is, um, has always been problematic for me. And there are these kind of sci-fi nerds and, and people who write... Uh, very passionately, you know, uh, the same way with comic book um, aficionados and connoisseurs. Uh, China Mealville is is one, and, and Mark Bold, and, and they write, um, and both of them are Marxists, and they write not very convincing Marxist analysis of, of sci-fi, but... It is interesting if you go back, I was thinking, <clears throat> knowing that we'd talk about this a bit, I was thinking about the day the earth stood still, which is which is the Eisenhower era, and and was the first kind of moral scolding um, of uh the military-industrial complex and uh and still is a is a strangely uh watchable film in a lot of ways uh and and but if you track that that evolution to um to the sci-fi of of the last 10 years we're seeing something very different and and uh part of the problem is and again you and I have talked about this Kubrick's 2001 which I think is a fantastic film part of the reason is because it was all hand painted and done the you know the CGI is very limited and and it's it's an entirely different order from stuff that came after where where it's entirely CGI Um, which and I'm digressing but as an aside there is a French series that that people can see on Netflix called Ad Vitam, which is entirely free of CGI. Um, and it probably was a relatively low-budget series. It's very, very good, I have to say. Without yeah, I mean, it's, you
1: know, the, the the Kubrick, you know, that was the first film that scared the bejesus out of me and also impressed me and haunted me when I was about eight years old. I don't know how old I was. <laughs> but it was, it was just... because it is so much about the unknowability of that, you know, of, of that dimension of things, you know, and he doesn't, and then, you know, the, the, in fact, the book that it was, that was, you know, he wrote the script with Arthur C. Clarke, and then Arthur C. Clarke published the book, which was a lot less interesting, actually. (laughs) Um, You know, where questions were answered and all this stuff in a way that, that Kubrick withholds, you know, that, that, you know, that monolith, the, the the rectangular slab is just such a completely eerie um, object, you know, to be in a major motion picture. And I always, I always have this intuition that, you know, if you think about Kubrick and those famous tracking shots that he got from Max Ophels. Yeah. Where he's tracking, you know, he's tracking through corridors. And at the end of the corridor, there's always this rectangular shape. And in some ways that slab is just an, a, an objectification of that rectangle that's always at the end of a tracking shot, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and the no. tension of a tracking yeah. shot, the tension of a tracking shot is always in the unknowability of what you're gonna encounter as you continue to track, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Scorsese does, does those kinds of tracking shots, and pans where he he ends on an empty room or an empty hallway or an empty something and then he holds it's like his famous three seconds too long hold he has some perverse you know but it but it creates a kind of rhythm um to his films but yeah i do know and and it's interesting i remember seeing 2001 when it came out and um i was only a bit older than you and and it made me sort of angry and, and bewildered at the same time. And uh, uh, because I didn't know how to process that kind of narrative at all at that point. I was just too young. And I went back and saw it many years later when they re-released it. And it was at the Cineramado, still, um, down on Sunset. And I went to the first matinee. I think I've told you the story.
1: Yeah, um, and this is a great story. Yeah.
0: But and I went and I was the first guy to buy a ticket, and it was 12 noon. And I went in and I, you know, bought some popcorn and I went down. And I thought, okay, I there was some leftover acid I had been keeping for you know like 25 <laughs> years, and I had taken that, so I got down to the front row, and there was literally, you know, how big that theater is massive theater. And I got down to the front row and I sat down and I was looking at my hands going, whoa, I'm coming on. This is really strong (laughs) stuff. This is going to be great, you know. And um, just as the lights were dimming, I, I hear these kind of padded footsteps and this other guy, and literally he's the only other guy in the theater. This is a matinee on Tuesday or something. And he comes over and he sits down right next to me. And I'm just coming on, you know, I'm just like tweaking. And um, as the lights just about are completely gone and the film is starting, he leans over and says, you're on acid too, right? And I, for the rest of the film, I was paralyzed white knuckle terror that I don't know what, you know, aliens. Well, yeah, like that's,
1: that's like, sixth, that's like the sixth. <laughs> ring of hell you know
0: (laughs) but but it it um i've seen the film not because i showed it at the films i've seen the film probably seven or eight times and and um i never tire of watching it i have to say
1: um, because it's
0: it's just it's a remarkable piece of work i mean it it is some kind of masterpiece whatever one thinks about it
1: that that long the long scene of the death of hal is yeah, it's incredible. A disturbing and alarming thing, you know.
0: Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Dave.
1: Now, the um, other thing that's interesting, the other film, of course, that's interesting, which was a direct response to Kubrick, was Tarkovsky's Solaris.
0: Yeah, which, which doesn't get talked about.
1: Film.
0: It's yeah, also it's a terrific film.
1: Film. I, It's like I don't feel any need to choose between those two movies. You
0: know? No, so, and I don't know why it's interesting if you read... <laughs> sci-fi nerd literature. Um, Solaris rarely gets mentioned. It somehow doesn't fit um, their canon um, for a speculative fiction or something. I don't know why.
1: Um, it, it, because maybe it's because the special effects are so uh, low low-grade you know it's low grade uh,
0: and it was about entropy you know i mean it was about everything <laughs> yes, wearing
1: out it's a very um, russian version of the future
0: you yeah, <laughs> know it was like you know the refrigerator doesn't work on your space station and stuff it's 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 um yeah it's a very kind of dostoevskian uh science fiction i think it's a it's a great film in fact it's kind of one of my favorite tarkovskys but anyway um the the uh, the the sense I get with with contemporary sci-fi, and and um, I've I've written a little bit about this, and I've had dialogues with people about it. Um, you look at a film like I Am Legend with Will Smith, um, which in some ways is a very well-crafted film, and and um, and very smartly made for what it is. Um, but it is a film, you know, about real estate, and, and this is the other aspect of this desire to start over, because I think part of the fantasy is we get to start over and pick whatever house we want on Washington Square. This is, of
1: this is course, you, you remember The Omega Man? Yes, yeah. The Charlton Heston movie? I mean, these are all remakes of The Omega Man, and it's exactly that. It's like, I get to live wherever I want. Right. Right, and no, I, you know, I, I have to do this whole thing when I come home of protecting myself against the the mutants, you know.
0: Right. Right. Well, and and the the um the 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 treatment of of the threat uh you know zombies or or virus or virus that becomes zombies and you know 28 weeks and then 28 weeks later um uh are are interesting films you know that in in some sense in the in the za- zombie canon um but but um in all of these films the threat is Ha- one gets a sense that it's overdetermined. You know, it's it's the ruling class fear of social unrest, the underclass of you know these fungible, brain dead beings out there that are using up my property and and resources and so forth. Uh, and then there is a kind of xenophobia that runs through all of it. I mean. I thought that Soderbergh's *Contagion* was an extraordinarily well-made film, um, and he can be really interesting, you know. Uh, but of course, you know, speaking of coronavirus, um, in *Contagion*, the virus starts in a in a Chinese restaurant in in China. That's the the end of the you know the search. The detective story is ah it was a you know a germ a that fell on drop, dropping yeah. into a pig pen, and, right? Yeah. Something. And um, and you know you read the right wing, not even right wing, but sort of just in general mainstream media about the coronavirus, and it's you know we blame China. It's the fault of China and Iran who seem to have anything to do with this, except they got hit hard by it, presumably, um, and. And it's feeding, you know, the kind of Trump-era xenophobia that, that's out there. And it is very quickly transferred. Oh, it's germs from China that somehow that's typical of, you know, socialism or totalitarianism or something is that, you know, they manufacture surplus germs. I mean, who knows what the reasoning is. But that very quickly transfers to immigrants. Um you know well, the instead, africans right. trying to land italy are germs you know right
1: this is this is of course the you know this is the central feature you know this is this is the lesson that the american right and certainly donald trump have learned from carl schmidt which is that the the fascist philosopher which is that you know the fundamental distinction in politics is us versus them friend right. versus foe and so, in every situation, you can see, you know, Trump hitting very hard on who the friends are and who the foe is. It's an it's an yeah. effort to kind of bypass the frontal cortex and go straight to the brain. <laughs> and, and, it's, well, I mean, and this brings me to this other thing. You know, Chris Rossi actually sent me yesterday an interesting um, because he heard when we did the roundtable, I was talking about Peter Thiel, or Thiel, right? Who uh, you know, it's sort of a uh, a right wing thinker, and the, one of the billionaires who came out of PayPal, one of the three people who started PayPal, and he at Stanford studied with Rene Girard, and is actually a very Girardian thinker. And it's because of Girard that he recognized that Facebook was going to be this huge success and everything. And I, um, you know, and that brings up the sort of politics of Girard and what you can do politically with Girard. And I think. You know, one of the interesting things in the, in the TL thing, uh, video, which I had not been aware of, and I need to, to listen to the whole thing even, you know, it's just so unfamiliar to me in some ways, which is shocking because I've written about TL. But I, um, a lot of it was about, you know, these guys are freaked out because since the 1970s, you know, the, the, the West and capitalism and global capitalism has not been able to maintain the level of innovation and growth that, and this is something that David Graeber also emphasizes, that if you look at the difference between 1920 and 1970, and the different and the world between 1970 and 2020, we haven't changed at all in the last 50 years. The previous 50 years saw this remarkable transformation of all these major inventions, you know, air travel, car travel, electricity, cities being wired, uh, you know, vaccines, um, various kinds of out of space travel, for God's sake, right? right. And so the, sci- the the reason I'm going into this is, is just that the science fiction narratives are kind of a way that we are sustaining our, uh, you know, our sort of belief in growth in a key of disappointment. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like,
0: yeah, no, I there hasn't been any change.
1: Uh, and And of course... Capitalism in general is premised on continual growth, and so these people are freaked out because if you, if you presuppose that capitalism is the only way that we can relate to each other, and there's no growth or very little growth or not enough growth, then it really is a real crisis. You know, if you can't imagine, if you can't leave that train, that's in slow here. Well,
0: <clears throat> yeah, and I, but I see. I think that, I think that actually, I mean, I think that's right. That. Um, but I think they understood that. I think the, the jillionaires out there, including Teal and all the guys that at Davos and the Bilderberg group and all of this, I think they realized that, that there was no need finally, and it was impossible anyway to keep expanding, to keep growing. And, um, and Molly Klein actually made this observation, but, but I think she's right. That, that, that's, they gave that up, that now it is about a contraction of capital. Um, and this is why I find the coronavirus, um, event, uh, narrative so disturbing because it, it falls in line with, um, a lot of the overpopulation kind of eugenicist thinkers, you know, Attenborough and Jane Goodall and these people, the Green New Deal people that buy into that as well. And I mean, there is no overpopulation. I mean, there's a demographic collapse, in fact, if anything. There's, you know, countries have, I mean, it's why, it's why, um, you know, uh, pregnancy, uh, is, with IV, what is it, IVF, is a so cottage industry. It's a, it's a huge industry now, in fact, um, because all save for one corner of Africa are seeing um, massive uh, fertility problems. But anyway, the contraction of capital is, um, is is going to probably in their minds, if this is correct, um, signal a, a whole change in the system. Uh, they, they, they want to create um, a global, you know, free trade zone, you know. Everybody will resemble t-shirt factories in Haiti. That's gonna, That's the idea, you know, Nike factories in Bangladesh or whatever it is. And then you have walled communities of the very rich and the only jobs are serving, the, you know, service sector uh, employment to the very rich, you can be a yoga instructor or fitness instructor to to jillionaires or something, um, or a chef or whatever it is, but, but that the the vision of those people and they they drop clues about this everywhere in interviews and conversations and I include Bill Gates in this who's an absolute Malthusian um, ghoul I think is that um, you know th- there's too many surplus people uh, it's a, it's a surplus population globally and probably it would be just to the to everyone's benefit, if uh, you know half of them died, and it's partly why you know Gates is such a birth control coercive birth control um, advocate, and his wonderful wife Melinda. Um, but but so I think I think. There probably is a segment that sees contraction of capital as simply a reality, and that's that's what's happening. And there probably are still many out there who are in a panic because you know growth is impossible. I mean, we're in an interesting time.
1: Well, yeah, right? the other there's a couple other perspectives that I think are interesting about this. One is because it's very interesting. TL and and those folks are focusing exactly on sort of 1973.
0: Yes. Yeah, the, yeah. the,
1: you know, which is the time, again, where the banks came to the uh, city of New York and said, hey, we're going to really run things now because um, we're tired of, you know, you telling <laughs> us what to do. But the, um, you know, the, the event that's, I mean, David Graeber is interesting on this, I find, in that, and it's disturbing, and I don't quite know what to think about it, which is, you know, he arranges, these long arcs of history into credit economies and exchange economies saying that when you know when we left the gold the, the the gold standard in the late 60s that was the the time when we shifted from an exchange economy to or began to shift to a credit economy now that means that of course there's a kind of medievalism in play because the last time we were in a credit economy was the medieval era, right? The pre modern. Right. And so, all the, and that's a very disturbing view to me because, of course, you know, I don't have good associations with the rigid hierarchies and the, you know, the sort of non dynamic mode. Of, and so that, but that explains why suddenly we have a kind of a, a, a weird sort of monarchic form returning kind of like well, the return of the repressed, you know. Yeah,
0: but interestingly, my friend um <clears> the <throat> artist in New York, Hiro Yuki Hamada, um who writes sometimes for for uh, dissident voice and, and off guardian and places and he's a very good artist and he wrote me a letter email the other day um comparing the the coming era to the the, ins- the institution of a new shogunate. And he said, you know, in 15th century Japan, there was this era um, probably going back to before that 14th, uh, in which there was absolute stability in a strict hierarchy that was enforced throughout the country by these shoguns. And they kept innovation at a minimum. It was all very sustainable. And and was a strict hierarchy with, you know, a massive slave labor force, essentially. Um, And I thought, yeah, that makes sense too. That's 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 another version of what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, we've talked about the neo-feudalist kind of moment here. And so Graeber puts that in this larger arc where, you know, exchange economies feature a lot of dynamism, a lot of growth, and a lot of war. So, you know, (laughs) It's just an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. The um you know and he says, you know, look, all the gold like you know, all the gold has now assembled itself into vaults. And yeah, you know, whereas before yeah. it was in circulation and it had been since you know, the 14th century, let's say, when it began to kind of leave the monasteries and right and trigger growth. So this is this is interesting and I'm not quite sure how to what to do with it. The other one that I always like is you know, Cornell West and Mar- Roberto Unger have an interesting kind of neo-pragmatic take on this, where they combine Gramsci and, um, and uh, Dewey, which is an interesting combination. <laughs> and they, you know, one of the things that I, I, you know, Unger is talking about the way we view labor. We're a little bit far away from science fiction now, but no,
0: that's cool. Great phrase, or 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 we're not. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. He said, He has this great phrase where he says, You know, all of the political uh, ideologies of modernity assume that labor is a crucifix from which we will be released into the private sublime, he says. And right. he says, another way to, if it, there's another way to view it, which, and what he's talking about really is, is what do you, what do, you do when the economy doesn't need human labor so much as it used to? Right. He says, well, you know, the point of fact, the things that we can do for each other are, are completely limitless. And it's just a different way of looking at, and in some ways, for those of us who have a creative vocation, we know what that's like. To be right. involved right. vocationally rather than in the mode of labor. It's just a different kind of perspective. I don't know what to do with it.
0: No, but I I know. Well, I think that I, I think that, that yeah. But it comes up again and again. And and um, the 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 medieval model and um, you know ancient slave states and and uh, this is all in the, my current blog post actually that. It also corresponds to, you know, cultural shifts. I mean, there was a cultural shift in in 5th century Greece um, from the, the festivals and events where everybody listened to recitations of Homer and they knew the poem by heart as well and it was all very Dionysian and it was functioning on this level of the mythos and not the logos and... Um, and that started to shift with and and become completely um, altered when when um, the alphabet came in and um, okay, you pictured' this, sure that, uh, the alphabet came in and um, uh, everything became textual and and that. I was reading René Guénon, who's a strange French convert to Islam. He became a Sufi, actually. And, you know, he saw that as the beginning of the end of Western culture. And he may be right, actually. But uh, it is why uh, we end up this long trajectory of instrumental thinking and why 20th century western culture became so dominated by positivism and behavioralism and uh there was a a sort of discarding of this is the dialectic of enlightenment a discarding of what was seen as barbarism and and myth and we were going to see progress and advancement and of course the advancement brought with it a worse form of of myth and barbarism uh and and you know this to bring this back to you know film and science fiction and all of this stuff i mean what you see in theater of course i mean one of the key elements in theater is presence that you're in the presence of live actors and um that no matter what anyone tries to do you almost even in the worst <laughs> the worst play you've ever seen produced by the worst MFA program in the world, there is still an element of, um, the, the mythos. There's still an element that can't, can't be shaken. Um, when, when that play starts. Um, but when you look at, you know, I mean, pick any number of, you know, of recent science fiction films, since we're talking science fiction ostensibly, um, uh, uh you know the the thing with um oh my god what's his name uh but like inception and and all of these things the the recent um gray james gray film that Brad Pitt um you know which was absolutely unwatchable and i didn't even Is that the get z the Z
1: one whatever it was called z yeah I,
0: I t- I knew Tommy Jaleed Jones was supposed to be in it, but I couldn't last that
1: long. Oh, oh, that one. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Ad Astra. Uh, right. Ad Astra. Was um, absolutely film. unwatchable and. <laughs> it's a remarkable and, film. Yeah. Preposterously bad. I mean. It was like a star trek episode you know yeah i just not even the writing you know? quality you
0: know? um you it it's like they and i know james Graham, i mean it's it sort of full disclosure i don't know him well but i mean we had a series of meetings and i met him and he's a very bright likable guy who just should not write his own screenplays um but it but it but it's laughably bad and part of what's what's so preposterous about it. And you see this in stuff like Star Trek, in fact, and you see it in all the various um, sci-fi stuff. And there's a lot of it. I mean, Hollywood keeps churning out science fiction, um, that it lacks all presence. It is, it is infantile and uh, is never... For all the attempts at a kind of kitsch spirituality or wonder and awe at the universe and you know uh, space travel and time travel it is they're invariably extraordinarily banal and lacking in all the things they probably intended to have in there somehow Um, but i think it's a product of of a culture that has gone about as far as it can go towards um the logos towards a just um instrumental and now it's just digital it's not even instrumental thinking it's a it's it's um a, a rote kind of behavior in which i mean and this is kind of what interests me about it in a sense in which the psychology of people now, and I, and I see this reading social media when you, people were responding to the coronavirus, and before that, it's interesting because before that social media was inundated with climate change talk. The climate change suddenly got bounced off the front page, um, because who cares if the earth is going to, you know, um, cease to exist in 12 years, right now we have a virus that's killing, you know, 3% of the population. Um, mostly aged people who might be dying of you know um, pneumonia anyway, but never mind uh, and so the the response in people that it is almost like there is there is the manufacturing of a personality. It used to be you went out into the world as a young person and you grew and you had experiences and it shaped who you were, your character and your personality I and mean, that 's the short form version now we have people who don't go out into the world, they stay addicted to their screen and they shop for you know, uh, aspects of personality and, and identity that they assemble and test drive on social media and in a small circle of friends. And if it's a favorable test drive, they keep it and, and they try to add more to it. If it's not, they discard it. Um, And these presentations of self, to echo Irving Goffman, and that's still a great book, by the way, um, you know, these presentations of self feel as though people are performing a role in their own private movie. They are performing something, and if if it doesn't play well, it'll be like take two, and you'll hear them say something completely contradictory to what they said seven seconds before, seven minutes before, because they're trying a different takeout. And it feels like I I get this distinct. First of all, it's usually white men, although there's a number of women. Um white men who who in the 60s were probably managers at your local health food store or something, but they've taken this radical reactionary turn. And uh it's it's like the reactionary new age or something a new age crypto fascism uh and and they are performing the role of caring and this is this thing that is a red flag for me whenever anybody says but but you know there's people suffering out there with coronavirus and they're dying and you know you know for certain when somebody says but think about them please don't be so you know that they're the most selfish and uncaring person imaginable that's just absolute (laughs) rule of law and uh and you think but you don't care about the you know however many (laughs) you know families living um in with like food precarity, the hungry the homeless the unemployed and desperate the million suicides each year in the United States you know you don't care about any of that you don't care about the violence that your country is, you know inflicts on the rest of the world
1: right it's just this staggering is, <laughs> yeah Go ahead. well this is an interesting this is an interesting thing that I have to give a hat tip to Peter Tl because you know, what he, what he said is, and, and believe me, it's, I have to put that in, put an asterisk on that, but I, I um, you know, he points out, which is true, that, you know, with this sudden lack of growth, all these institutions of American life that are premised on continual growth have simply engaged in uh, lying, basically, institutional forms yeah. of lying and that it's you know to some extent it's a, it's a it's a call for me i mean i have to look at like how i've participated in that in a sense just because it's really hard to look at the truth and 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 i suppose one of the things about the coronavirus is that it's encouraging and we'll see what what happens with this i don't, i'm not terribly optimistic about it but one thing i wanted to come back to was when i'm thinking about science fiction i'm thinking about some of the uncanny you know, when I think about Philip K. Dick uh, and yes. uh, Ursula Le Guin, are two examples of people who managed to do something in that mode that I think is pretty interesting. Now, Absolutely. Philip K. Dick, I never really liked too much on the level of like line for line writing, but it, there's something uncanny at work in Philip K. Dick, of course.
0: Absolutely,
1: and and it it has to do with uh, a view, and I don't know what to say about that. I just want to put that out there that this is different than the kind of
0: well you know, yeah of philip movement. k dick philip T. i mean i got really i think i've read everything of dicks i mean it happened many years ago when i was living in new york we people terry Ork and people i knew back there we we all went on a, a philip k dick binge and emmanuel carrier's biography of dick is worth reading by the way and i read it um when I flew from uh, Norway to to Buffalo, New York um, last year or the year before, whenever that was, and I had long layovers and sitting in Dulles airport in d c reading biography of Philip K. Dick was actually perfect uh, a perfect experience. but uh, no, Dick is extraordinary I mean it, you know he 's not a careful writer he 's not a great prose stylist, none of that matters he was hammering away at two or three things over and over and over again that were absolutely true. And in that sense, he's a little bit like Pynchon, you know, that that he understood something about the the mysteries, to quote René Um, that they're still there, they're just hidden. I remember yeah, crying a lot great for
1: Yeah, what? that's a great way to put it. and And actually... Speaking of movies, did you, you know, I, I, quite, I quite like the Pynchon movie that um, with Joaquin Phoenix. that, that, yeah, that, was that? A,
0: uh, yeah, It was a very strange film. <laughs> that was a very strange film. I wrote about it and I was not at all happy with, with what I wrote. I mean,
1: it may be that I had just very low expectations, but I actually thought it was, or that it was just, I got carried away by the nostalgia for the 1960s. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that was part of Something my vice.
1: what was it called? Uh, um, inherent vice. Inherent
0: vice. Called. But that was part of my experience. I thought, oh my god, this is like seeing my life flash before my eyes. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um But but, but like but in,
1: PK I, Dick. PK Dick is oddly prophetic. I mean, that, unbelievably you know, the,
0: so. Unbelievably yeah. so. And and you know he he had like crippling depression and paranoia in in his life, and it it. Um, he would see the sky form into an angry scowling dark cloudy face all the time you know and um, uh, and so that paranoia I mean like the uh, three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, which in a you know much bolderized version became Blade Runner um, the book is a, is pretty incredible and it is it is the best book ever written about drug abuse, I think. But, uh, you know, this this imaginary sci-fi drug that moon colonists um, are quickly addicted to because they can't stand the boredom of living on the moon, right? Um, but uh, he has been transferred to the film in ways that completely reverse the meaning of his books, The Man in the High Castle. I mean they made it into almost Nazi propaganda i mean the the book is a completely different experience um uh, but all of his stuff I find that he you know he 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 caught something he captured something about you know c- contemporary urban life that in a similar way. Um, Pynchon did, and in a similar way, R. Crumb does. Uh, that's very, yeah, uh, that that, that exactly
1: if, R. Crumb is exactly it. Yeah.
0: You know, if you look at the backgrounds to Crumb, the way Crumb draws cities, I've always been struck by that. That that's the city that Pynchon inhabits. Um, certainly in *Crying of Lot 49*, you know the whole the whole paranoia about the the postal service and. And that crops up all kinds of places in, in contemporary literature, actually. But they all caught something about the this ineffable, elusive, uncanny, um, and disturbing quality of urban life in the second half of the 20th century. I,
1: I would include Philip Gustin in that, although he's a little more peripheral. You know, yeah, I he. haven't.
0: I don't know him
1: very well. Oh, you should check admit. out Philip. You would you would love Philip Guston.
0: Okay. And so on my list.
1: Is is his development is interesting too, but anyway. Um.
0: No, I mean that's all. I just I think that um, that there's yet to be a a good version of a Philip K Dick novel put on film and and it may be that it's impossible. It may be that it's the experience of reading Dick that unnerving um, and unsettling, like, you know, nervous tension you feel, because he was a speed freak, you know, he wrote this stuff wired on amphetamines, and you feel it, and it becomes uncomfortable at a certain point, you can feel it. And that fed his paranoia, of course, and yet, you know, his paranoia was grounded in, in a certain reality, too. Uh, and and that's and that's Pynchon as well that that you know coincidence and um, you, know, you know there's, uh, a, there's an interesting
1: yeah know, speaking on. about Ursula Le Guin there's an interesting who's also I think I find uh, you know a, a very uncanny writer but there's recently there was a book and I'm not quite sure what I think of it but it was certainly kind of remarkable to read called the library at Mount Char which is a very Ursula Le Guin kind of examination of some of this stuff. It was pretty trippy. It was pretty, pretty interesting. I thought, but I, um, I mean, we're off of the film a little bit here, but I, uh, I agree with you about the the PK Dick. Yeah. Uh, I, and, and I, mean, parts, You know, that just even little elements of Dick prove enough to sustain whole franchises, you know,
0: Right. Well, again back to, you know, I mean, you look at stuff like Avatar, say and um How about Arrival,
1: did you see Arrival
0: John? Uh yeah, refresh my memory. See, this stuff was so fungible. It's all Arrival, arrival. is the Yes, know, the... right. It was the pretentious We have to learn to speak alien and it little yeah. cloud puffs and yeah. Uh-huh. Oh my lord. Um yeah, that was that was kind of like watching paint dry as what that character once said um in uh, uh what was that film night moves um no there's there's something that that uh is has become extraordinarily banal in science fiction film part of it is the corruption of the aesthetic the the visuality of these things because they become incredibly dependent on cgi and that has taken over film in general of course and it's a it's a profound um corruption in fact uh and it's why a series like ad vitam that is french um is so watchable it's not that it's profound it's very intelligent and and they have terrific actors and and it moves along um, in a certain kind of logical way. And it's there's a there's a there's an idea behind it, but it's watchable because you don't have this this CGI. And and part of there is something in that dependency on CGI that has made, I want to say it has made directors and writers lazy, but it's but it's not that. Um, it's that it's it's a useful tool to cover over the bankruptcy of, of their creativity, I think. Um, because, I, you know, uh, I, I, films like, um, it's not science fiction, but uh, the film about the guy who pretended, based on a true story, Emmanuel Carrier, who wrote a book about it, who pretended to work for, you know, world health organization or someplace and he but he was actually unemployed he just drove around all day and eventually he killed his wife and family um uh and uh they made a film of effect they made a couple of films about it all of the book the films all that and i i it's terrible and i can't remember the title of the film um uh were borderline science fiction but they were based on this true story because there was something unreal about the life this character led, right? That he spent, it went on for years. He borrowed money. He covered his tracks. Nobody knew he was unemployed and spent his days sitting in his car and in cafes and, and gas stations sitting, you know. And then he'd drive by. If it was, I think it was the World Health Organization. Anyway, it was in Switzerland, and he'd get pamphlets out of the office and he carried a briefcase and he'd put the brochures and his, you know, so it looked like he'd been at work all day and he'd come home. And nobody knew for like 12 years or something, and it just crazy. Um, and uh that's the kind of stuff that I feel like Pinchon and Dick and those writers, that was that was their worldview. They understood something about the, what was deeply irrational in contemporary life, instead of, you know, the Joss Whedon's and, and whoever's that, well, you know, you know it's, the Star Trek franchise that pretend there is nothing uncanny, that we're on a steady, linear track to progress, you know?
1: Well, or, or it's, I mean, you know, it's just remarkable to see these comic books that I grew up loving, in a way. um suddenly being like this major part of the culture where you know i mean and you have to think about the the superhero which of course appeals to adult insecure adolescent boys you know for sure Right. but it's also there's something about it that's essentially fascistic in the sense that it's the exceptional individual who yeah absolutely lives in the exception you know it's the exception from uh you know there's you know the the role of the exception in fascistic thought, you know, that the leader is, is the exception who exists outside of the law. And, and that, and this is sort of that, you know, the, the sort of essence of, you know, bad boy capitalism, I was, I was, I was <laughs> looking at, uh, this, you know, this announcement uh, for the new president of Solomon Brothers, you know, and he has this bad boy grin, and I was like, you know, this is an artifact of the of the post sixties era where, you know, right. this irreverent yeah. cowboy attitude, you know, sort of countercultural attitude is suddenly embraced by the captains of industry. And they're always smiling like they are getting away with something because yeah. they're just such
0: yeah. bad well, voice. I don't know if you've watched any of the the um the Mrs. Television um series Billions, which is in its third or fourth season.
1: With, Giamatti and,
0: yeah. yeah um which is a kind of uh, wall street but it's but it's absolutely a valentine to ruthlessness and and um the, the winner. venture yeah. capitalist winner who winner. squashes people but hey you know that's He's what makes He's a winner you bad. got all
1: of him He's charismatic what about yeah. succession i haven't watched succession but if you check that out if you, you
0: know, know. i uh, we uh, chris ross and i talked about um I tried and I'm not sure what stopped me from, because it's, it's kind of addictive, I admit. And there is something admirable about it. And I love Brian Cox, but there was also something at a certain point that felt predictable for me or, or I just, I just didn't care. It was just too familiar or something. But if you want to see self parody, um, watch the second season just began of HBO's Westworld. Um,
1: Oh, I I checked out. I just, I watched the end of it, John. And you know, I was like, okay, I'm not gonna sit through that, let me just see. And I, it just reminded me of everything I hate about television. Yeah. These endless like cliffhangers. Like the whole thing is a cliffhanger. Like something significant is about to happen. Just look at Harris's face. And something significant is about to happen. You know, and it's it's just this very interesting kind of exploitation of what actors can do in a sense. Right. You know?
0: Well, I mean, the first season was nothing if not pretentious and overwrought, um, and I managed to to get through it all because there's some of the I like Richard Wright, I like Thandi Newton um and and you know especially when she takes her clothes off and you know the the, it was a very expensive show and and anthony hopkins was in it so you get to kind of goof on these very fine actors doing their thing and but as the season went on i just kept watching it thinking this is god awful I mean, this is just, it, it is just you know, solipsistic bullshit and, and just, where,
1: just, I mean, and it's just it's just they have these actors, they don't have a clue what to do with them. No. They you know, they have this situation and they don't really know what it's about. So it's endlessly portentous, kind of empty. Exactly. But exactly and, they don't know what it's about. No, and, and but there's a pretense that they do. I'll tell you the other series that that comes up, but we talked about it a little bit on email was the expanse, which is sort of It's sort of interesting. It's not great, by any means, and it has all the problems of television, but it it has also to do with class dynamics in a weird way.
0: Yeah, I watched the first part of that, first few episodes, and I liked it, and I forget why I stopped watching it.
1: And it's, I mean, it it also has this, just to circle back to Kubrick, it has this, you know, this alien uh, life form that cannot be understood. And even, you know, that it's, to me, is worth quite a bit, just in terms of the nature of.
0: Yeah, well, but, I mean, yeah. there was a British show about um, futuristic, the, the near future, where everybody had um, android maids and servants and helpers um, and, um, and sex buddies sometimes you could set it you could set your maid to sex buddy if you felt like it and not tell your wife and but it was very well done and 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 very satisfying finally because of course the androids rebel and it is the revolt of the slaves and so forth um but i think what's appealing about that premise always is again there is something uncanny about that you know that that we all know people that we think are androids, you know, Um, I've had bosses that I was sure were androids the people I worked for in Hollywood, almost every producer I was sure was an android. And, um, and so that nags at us and that Philip K. Dick, you know, um, mined that theme in three or four of his books that, uh, uh, the idea of artificial intelligence and replicants and, and somehow duplicating the human, what is, because it raises questions of course about what is the human, and how do we separate ourselves from the machines and so on. Um, but anyway, that, that was actually a, a reasonably satisfying show, again with very little CGI. I almost divide my world into, you know, CGI heavy and, and non-CGI viewing. Um But you know, to sort of bring this back as a as a sort of as we wind down this thing to the coronavirus, what is uncanny in this whole event has been um, that the government In the US, the government in England, and then following on that, the governments in France and and Germany and uh, let alone Italy, of course, which is a whole other story, but that everybody has so quickly declared these mass quarantines. And there there were health professionals, doctors and virologists and um, people who studied... Um, dealing with with quarantines and, and so forth, that said it's actually maybe counterproductive to be doing this. And especially with young people who are going to be cooped up at home, people who are normally um, working are going to be out of work and incredibly stressed and anxious. That's not healthy. More people are going to get sick from other things because immune systems are going to be compromised due to stress. Limited shopping, all of this stuff, um, and they were ignored, and they were they were quickly silenced um, in mainstream media, and the the panic set in because people were selling this idea that it was a panic, you know. And I understand that it's the virus is real. There's a real virus out there, and it's making real people sick. Admittedly, um, mostly you know very old people, but still not exclusively so i understand that's a, a back to a much earlier comment but you know this is the great unknowable right this is unknowable forces at work it's this thing you can't see it's uh, you know we only see the effects of it um we don't get to see this virus it's invisible and it kills people and it makes people sick and blah 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 um and it harkens back to the way the anthrax scare was treated by media too, you know, um, which was completely amped up craziness and, you know, um, and then the paranoia sets in, and I'm convinced the government has paid trolls, I really am, and I'm, you know, this is what they do with their black budget, that, that disseminate absurd, um, you know, uh, conspiracy theory claims, oh, it was, you know, uh, created by, you know, the Rothschild Bank or something. And Emmanuel Macron is like, you know, the first carrier of it or something. Patients are, I mean, whatever. These absurd things that nobody rational would believe. But it's the the better to distract people from real questions.
1: Like, why is
0: there there this mass quarantine? Well, this
1: is it, John, because... You know part of it is is part of it is mandated by how ridiculous the you know the especially in the united states of, of the you know the medical um infrastructure because it's just not capable of handling what is going to happen as a, i mean we're just seeing that now right and of course you know i mean it's very interesting to see what's happening for example in germany i mean for god's sake uh you know, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's all too early to tell. And it, you know, the thing that's, that's disturbing. And when you think about, uh, when you think about contagion is this is, you know, this virus could be much more lethal. Right. And in next year may well be, you know, I (laughs) mean,
0: Well, I mean, look at, look at, I remember six months ago, a story broke about the, you know, there's a homeless crisis in Los Angeles that they discovered bubonic plague, crisis of bubonic really? plague in a homeless camp um, in Los Angeles. And yet that story didn't really have legs. I mean, there's real stuff out there and diseases of insanitation, people living on the street, um, desperate. Of course, you're going to have eventually these things, TB, and and in some places Colorado. malaria, and, you know, so um, suddenly this comes along and this becomes the designate um, uh, villain du jour in a sense that everybody can rally around and you have celebrities fucking Sean Penn, man, somebody just stop this motherfucker from ever, you know, appearing in public again. Um, And just insufferable superiority for, for such a numbskull. And, um, talking about, well, you know, we could use the U.S. military. I mean, you know, and then Anderson Cooper said, yes, there's the greatest force for humanitarian good in the world is the U.S. military. And I thought, I, you know, this is why I don't own a gun, you know. Um, if I were in the room with him, I'd shoot him. Um, it, it, is, it is almost comical if it weren't tragic and if it weren't so frightening. Um, because the people that are going to make money off this are the people, the last people we want to be making yet more money. And, um, you know, well, yeah, you, you're right. It's too early. We'll see where this goes. We'll see if these radical measures of, of policy choices about restricting movement and sheltering in place. I love all the new vocabulary, flatten the curve. Um, We'll see if that stuff gets rolled back or if it's the new normal or,
1: or what's gonna happen. I don't know. I don't know. All right, but, well, hey, I got one question for you. Are yeah. you a fan of G- Junior Kimbrough?
0: I don't know who Junior Kimbrough is.
1: I'm gonna send you some. I'm gonna send you some. Okay, man, good. good. Well, right.
0: let's do another one of these two because I'm, you know, um, it, it's, it's fun. And um, uh, let me thank also Jack Littman, um, who does the technical stuff and helps me out a great deal, whose micro-budget science fiction film uh, won some awards, and I'm probably going to forget the name again. What is it called? Rumble? Oh my R- god! Rumble
1: Strip. R- Rumble, Rumble Strip. Rumble
0: Strip. Yeah.
1: A good film. And he did a great job. It is a good film. Jack, it's a, a, it's Jack, a, Jack a, did a great a, job with that. Uh, Jack, yeah, you
0: know. He did a remarkable job, and I want to sort of pimp for... Uh, for I think
1: it's we'll have to we'll have to figure out how to how to point people toward it.
0: Yeah, I, I should do that on Instagram actually. Anyway, thanks to Jack, thanks to um you and everybody helping with Aesthetic Resistance. We'll do another. One. I'm going to start trying to do um three people soon. You know, uh, I'm going to do Molly again this week with uh, our our friend the kid Michael Petroselli. Um, and Chris Rossi promises to come on and Hiroyuki Hamada is going to be on. And these are all, um, in varying ways, artists and political thinkers. And that's what you're going to get at Aesthetic Resistance. So um, thanks, Guy. Uh, it's early yeah, in the I'll morning. late in the in afternoon know. for me. Um, but we'll, we'll be in touch. And Sounds good. Take thanks, Jack. You. And uh, that's it for us. Okay.
1: All right.